Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our morning service. Whether you're here in the building with us in person or whether you're watching online, it's great to come together in this way. A particular warm welcome to anybody who's a visitor or a newcomer here this morning, um, particularly um, friends and family of Colin and Vicky who are here with us uh, for the wedding yesterday. It was a great day. Um, Christ was very much at the, the centre of it. Um, really uplifting singing and great to celebrate the, the wedding of Colin and Vicky. I think we might have a little photo we might be able to show coming up on the screen. Uh, here you go. Great. Um, if you weren't here and you weren't able to watch the service, um, go. <laughs> yeah, you can still watch the service on YouTube on Catch Up, so feel free to go along there on the church YouTube uh, page and you can find the service there. Well, this morning, Sarah's going to be continuing in our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, so far, we've looked at how he is the one who reveals to us the truth. He gives us the opportunity of a fresh start as he enables us to be born again spiritually. And he brings us a joy of freedom from sin. For those of us who are Christians already, but uh, from time to time may struggle in our faith, and we may have doubts in our faith, uh, maybe we wonder if we're truly saved. Well, the Holy Spirit also brings us assurance, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. In 1 John 3, it says this, And this is God's command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Let's pray and thank God for the gift of his spirit as we start our service together. Father God, we thank you that you are with us this morning by your spirit. We pray we would experience the joy and the power of your presence here this morning. For those who do not yet know you, we pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see the truth, to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. For those who are feeling troubled or weary or lost or lonely, may they know the peace and comfort of your spirit. And Father, where we already belong to you, we pray that you would assure us that we are your children, that you abide in us as we abide in you. And that you will continue to strengthen us, purify us, and teach us to become more like Jesus each day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the different ways in which you help us see our need for salvation. And for the different people you use in that process. Thank you for the way you've brought Alec to faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the change you've made in his life as a result. We thank you for the wedding of Colin and Vicky yesterday, and for all those who helped in different ways to make it a memorable day for them. Thank you for bringing them together, for making them one. Thank you for the love they have for you and for one another, and for their desire to build their marriage on the foundation of Jesus and his word. Would you pray for them in the early days of their marriage, that you would enable them to show each other the gracious and sacrificial love of Christ we heard about yesterday. Help them to build new friendships, to establish good routines, to love 
and serve your people together with joy in their hearts. Give them wisdom and any decisions they need to make about the future. And we pray for us as a church and for their friends and families here this morning that you would enable us all to give them the encouragement they need as we support and pray for them. And Fathers, we give you thanks for Colin and Vicky's marriage. We thank you for what marriage symbolises, the union between Christ and his people, the church. Thank you that because of this union, you were willing to transfer the punishment we deserve for our sins to the one who did not deserve it, to Jesus Christ, so that we might be pardoned. Thank you that in your mercy you were willing to transfer Christ's perfect obedience to us and treat us as if we had never sinned. Thank you that you're continuing to prepare us for that day when we will be presented to Christ as his bride, who we will love for the rest of eternity. So forgive us, we pray, for the ongoing things that we do that displease you and instead make us more like Jesus as your spirit works in us, we pray. Father, we pray for all the relationships in this church that they would be honouring to you. We pray for other married couples, for those whose marriage may have become cold or loveless, where Jesus is no longer at the centre. May you revive them, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Help them to see the love that you have for them. Father, for those who are divorced or widowed, we pray for healing and comfort. We pray for them and others who are single that they would know the joy of deep friendships across the ages. The joy of being part of a church family. And we pray that they would know the fullness of life that Jesus promises. We pray for our young people finishing exams, those finishing university, that you would help them not to worry about the future, but help them to depend on you, help them to make wise decisions and put you first in all things. Father, as we rejoice in our relationship with Jesus, we pray for those who do not yet know him and for the different ministries that seek to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Pray for dads and tots that meet next Saturday, for a good number of dads and toddlers to come along, for good conversations and relationships to be developed, that you may be stirring up a spiritual appetite in them. We pray for our overseas mission. And lift up to you this morning, Pastor Julian in Romania, and ask your blessing on him and his wife Lydia and their children, Julia and Catalin. We pray for healing and restoration after recent discouragements in ministry. Pray that you give him a deeper awareness of your love for him and a renewed zeal to serve you and others. We pray for his ministry to the police and army cadets, to the children who play basketball and their families, that he would have opportunities to share the good news of Jesus and that lives will be changed as a result. Pray for all the work that he's doing on his home, that he would enable that all to be completed. So there's different people come to that place, either for midweek groups or to worship as part of your church, that they would experience your presence there. And finally, we pray for Martin as he reads your word to us now. 
facade as he explains it and applies it to our lives. And for us, as we listen, that we would hear you speaking to us, granting us the assurance we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans 8, 31 to 39. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's great, Marty. Thank you so much uh, for reading for us. Uh, before I start, uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, we have received the spirit of adoption as children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are indeed your children. I thank you that we have been sealed by your spirit. And I pray that as we come to your word this morning, uh, help me uh, speak clearly. Uh, help us all uh, to have our uh, ears open, uh, ready our hearts. Might we be expectant uh, that you would speak to us powerfully. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. It would be a great help to me if you're uh, able to, uh, to follow along with me. Uh, we're continuing uh, our series uh, through uh, the work of uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Uh, and this morning we come to the subject of assurance, the question of knowing with certainty the truth of our salvation. Now, for those of us here this morning who would call ourselves Christians, uh, let me make a very bold statement. Let me say that of all the things that ail you, all of the things that hamper our growth as a Christian have at their root a lack of assurance. Okay, so let me go further and say, uh, by some distance, our lack of assurance, the certainty of our salvation, and, and what that means, that is our biggest problem. 
Now, the 20th century preacher uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones highlights what's at stake uh, when assurance uh, is not grasped. He says this, We should all be concerned about our assurance of salvation. Because if we lack assurance, we lack joy. And if we lack joy, our Christian life is probably of poor quality. Uh, In other words, we will not have found or we will not be enjoying the fullness of life through the work of the Spirit uh, in our lives. And consequently, we just will not have life uh, in all of its fullness. And when we talk about uh, Christian assurance, uh, what what is it that we have in mind? Uh, Christian assurance is the known, realized, and and the experienced certainty of our salvation. It's the known, realized, and experienced certainty of our salvation. In other words, grasping not just in our minds, but also in our hearts, the truth of what it means for us to have been made right with God. And it's absolutely essential uh, for our Christian journey. The more that we can uh, enjoy the assurance of our salvation, the more the transforming power of the work of the Spirit will be unleashed in our lives. And so as we look at the passage this morning, uh, I want us uh, to see three things. Firstly, why we lack assurance. Secondly, uh, the fuel for our assurance. And thirdly, the awakening of our heart. So firstly, why we lack assurance. Uh, Paul starts with this uh, in in our verse, uh, verse 31, as he starts. uh, And he says this, what then shall we say in response to these things? What things? What things? It's an obvious question there, isn't it? And to see that, we just need to cast our eyes a little further back into Paul's letter, uh, this letter to the church in Rome, uh, and actually a letter to us as well, as God has preserved it uh, for us as well. Now, Paul's written this letter to the church in Rome uh, to explain that the gospel, the work that God has done to rescue the people that he loves, to make them right with himself, that gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And through it, we see the righteousness of God. This offer of salvation is for everyone and it's for anyone who will trust in what God has done through Christ. Our salvation is a free gift. It's free to receive and it has transforming power. The power of the Spirit. And that's the focus of this letter to the church in Rome. Now, we, however, we struggle, don't we? We struggle to believe that something so good to be made right with God, something so good could come to us. And it can be a function of our life circumstances uh, that we struggle to believe that we've been saved um, or because of the way that our lives are going. Now, by way of example, let me give us just two ways uh, that we as Christians can start to doubt God's love for us. A problem on the inside and a problem on the outside, inside and outside. On the inside, uh, when we look at the evidence of our own lives, uh, we see a life that remains riddled with behaviours and attitudes that really don't reflect the truth of our salvation. Our inability to forgive those who've wronged us, 
uh, our unwillingness to serve uh, others with joy, uh, our reluctance to support ministry with our money, our addiction to pornography, to gossip, to shopping, to eating, to gambling, to work, or to drugs. And all of those things in our lives uh, are there, and our conscience comes to us, doesn't it? Our conscience comes to us and says, call yourself a Christian. Uh, One theologian put it like this, uh, like a medieval inquisitor, we lay our souls upon the rack and we inflict torture with constant accusations. Uh, Do I bear enough of the fruit of the spirit? Uh, Is my faith solid enough? Have I confessed and repented sufficiently? Have I tricked myself into believing that I am saved? All the while... We forget to look to the saviour in faith. What he says is that when we look at our lives and the way that we live, we start to doubt, don't we, that God could ever love us. But the Holy Spirit, he comes along and he brings truth to us. And he works that truth into our hearts. The advocate, he comes alongside and he lifts our eyes to the Lord Jesus. That's the inside. On the outside, when we go through trials, when we find ourselves beaten down by factors that we can't control, for instance, the death of a loved one, the loss of career, broken relationships, failing health, and so on, things that are beyond our control, we can start to think, God's abandoned us. We say to ourselves, what? Surely, if God loved me, he would not let this happen to me. We start to doubt that God really loves us. We start to doubt that God could ever love us. So we lose some assurance of our salvation. Uh, If it's an inside problem, shame and guilt start to overwhelm us. We feel embarrassed, don't we, uh, to come before God with our failures. Uh, We think he'll just be disappointed with us. Uh, We've lied again, we've looked at porn again, we've got uncontrollably angry again, we've picked up again. So we become defeatist, and we stop asking God to help us put those things to death. Over time, as we've stopped asking God to help us, those problems, well... They just become bigger. So we become less confident of God's love. The assurance gets smaller and the spiral goes down and down. Uh, If it's an outside problem, we lose assurance about the goodness of God or the power of God to help. Or we think that because we've been good, surely God owes us. We've lost sight of eternity. We've lost sight of all the things that God is doing. We instead look at our trials and think that nothing good could ever come out of them. That God can't control anything and certainly does not control my salvation. Just think of the disciples. Good Friday at the foot of the cross with their saviour crucified. They looked at Christ on the cross and must have thought there is nothing good that God can bring out of this. But they were, if you like, 
looking at a wonderful tapestry, but from the reverse side. They were looking at the back of the crown. They didn't and couldn't see what was on the other side. The beautiful crown that God was weaving through the death of Jesus. At times, all we see is the mess on the left-hand side of the tapestry there. And we think that God's got things wrong. And when we do that, our hearts get harder. We become bitter. And our resentment grows towards God and towards others. So we start to lose again the assurance of our salvation. We're overwhelmed by our circumstances. And so even for the most mature Christian, it is possible to start to lose the assurance that we have of God's love for us. And it's not just a sadness, it's not a small thing, no. A growing lack of assurance erodes every part of our Christian life. So the question is, how can we grow in assurance? Which is our second point. We need fuel and the truths are what we need. Given that we need to grow in assurance, it can be tempting, can't it, to approach that in the style of the little engine. Uh, The children's story of a little train that thought that with a combination of steely willpower and hard work, that he would be able to climb to the top of the hill, puffing, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. No. No. We do not grow in assurance through our efforts and our willpower. What we need, what we need is to take the truth about God's love for us, revealed in and through Christ Jesus, the word, the truth that's been revealed in God's word in his Bible, and plant that, plant that truth deep into our hearts. And through prayer, through meditation, through reflection, allow the Holy Spirit to lift those truths up before our eyes and set our hearts on fire. For the Holy Spirit to make them real. For us to experience through that the love of God. To allow the Holy Spirit to whisper those truths into our ears and into our hearts. I wonder... Do you know that for yourself? Uh, The question is, well, what truths? What truths do we need to plant into our hearts to grow in assurance? And we see those truths uh, summarized in Romans 8. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, please do turn back to the start of Romans 8. And here Paul lifts out uh, four amazing realities that we need to sow into our hearts. Uh, Firstly, that because of Christ... There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. In Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, Paul tells us that because of all that God has done, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation that was ours has fallen into Jesus' heart. It's important to know that the charges against us, our rebellion against God, are right and they are just. Everyone really did fail to live the way that God has called us to. We were found guilty. 
And the penalty for that is to be cast away from the presence of God in a place that the Bible calls hell. The sentence was passed. We stood condemned. But, but, Paul tells us, that because Jesus came and he lived the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we deserve in our place, taking our condemnation upon himself, there is now no condemnation for us. Secondly, uh, we've been made children of God. And Paul explains that in verses 12 through 17, that we've gone from being enemies of God to being his children. That by the work and the power of the Spirit, we can call God our Father, Abba, our Father. We are heirs with Christ. We've been rescued from condemnation into adoption. And once we are children, we are children forever. Now, I have three children whom I dearly love. When they are behaving badly, when they're errant, when they're rebellious, that does not disqualify them as my children. They are permanently my children. If they choose to live in a different country, even if they don't speak to me for years, they remain my children. They may be errant and disobedient, but they are forever, forever my children. That will never change. And when we are adopted as God's children, that will never change. Thirdly, in verses 18 through 30, uh, Paul tells us that through a living relationship with God, by the work of the Spirit, we're being readied for future glory. Something so great, something so wonderful that Paul says that given all the trials, all the tribulations that I've had, everything that has been against me, pressing in on me, causing me harm, all of that, it's like a pinprick compared to the ocean of joy, the ocean of glory and love that awaits me. And for us to know that God is in control of all things so that we can trust him is really really key that he will deliver that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose so we've gone from enemies to being people who've been set free and more than that we're lifted up as treasures known by God brought in as his children brought in to a living relationship with him and God has done that even though the only way to bring enemies in was for his son to go out and die see those are the truths that we need to plant into our hearts those are the truths that the spirit will bring up and make alive to us Those are the truths that will set our hearts on fire. And those are the truths that the advocate will remind us of and bring to mind. And it's in the light of those truths that our hearts will be awakened. That brings us to our third point, the awakening of our heart. Uh, Paul's telling us 
uh, the things that we need to have planted in our hearts for us to grow in our assurance. We need to water the ground, and Paul tells us that that's done by meditating and praying on these truths. Uh, Praying them hot. And he shows us this by asking a series of questions. He's essentially saying, man, you have got all of this. You have got all of this. Why? Why are you lacking in assurance? That's what he's screaming uh, to us. Now, I'm sure you've seen those uh, classic black and white uh, cowboy movies. Uh, Amongst my favourite are the ones where uh, some guy uh, comes into town and he buys a plot of land just because it's got a beautiful view. Okay, farming land. So he buys it uh, and he settles in. A few years later, some of the local villains, they find out there's gold in them their hills. And this guy doesn't know it. He's bought the land, he's farming it, he's looking out, admiring the land, unaware of the treasure below. And all the while through the film, the bad guys are trying to badger and push and threaten and carry him off the land. And at the end, obviously, he realises the treasure that he's on. But we can be like the cowboy that's on the land, unaware of the treasure that's theirs right beneath their feet. And Paul says, if we, if, if we lack assurance, if we lack assurance, we're like the cowboy. We're like the cowboy who doesn't know the treasure beneath his feet. So to help us, Paul asks the question in verse uh, 31. Let's take a look at that again. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? Starts with this uh, rhetorical question. He's saying that uh, given, given all that I've told you, given all that's been revealed, what can we, well no, what must we, what must we conclude? And so Paul continues with a series of questions, questions uh, born out of the truths of what God has done to save us. Truths that our assurance as Christians comes from. And he goes on uh, in verse 31. He says, if God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? A better translation would be to say, uh, since God is for us, or uh, in the light of the fact that God is for us, then who can be against us? That's a great encouragement, isn't it? That really is a great encouragement. Paul reminds us that God is for us. That the one who stands over and above all things, the one who created all things with the word of his power through the stars into space, the one who sustains all things simply by the word of, of the power of his word, the one who is sovereign in control of all things, this, this is the one who is for us. This is the one who is for us. That is the one who will keep the promises that he has made, who will guard us and bring us safely to himself. And given that God is for us, that means that the work of salvation, that's a work that's done by God for us. It is not our efforts. Praise the Lord. It is not our efforts by which we are saved. 
It is God's love for us that gives us the assurance of our salvation. It is not our love for God that assures our salvation. Because our love is half-hearted. It's fickle. It's wobbly. So we can thank God that our salvation is a function of his love for us. And Paul then goes on. Verses 32 to 33. Take a look with me. Uh, He says, uh, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. I mean, these are verses that we could just climb inside of and look at and wonder and ponder and with mouths open, look at the glory and the treasure uh, that's in here. Uh, God looked down from heaven and saw humanity rebelling, shaking its fist at God, rejecting him, taking all the things that God has given and refusing to acknowledge the one who gave those things to us. Yet God's love for us was so firm, so strong, he was so committed to our eternal good that he would not spare his only son. He would not spare his only son. And Paul says, look, look, if you want to know how committed God is to you, Look at what he has done for you. He did not spare his only son. So he will do all the things that he has promised. The death of his only son shows that God is all in. He is all in. He is holding nothing back. He's left nothing behind. He has hidden no good thing from us. And the Holy Spirit gathers that up. Lifts it to our hearts, and as he breathes on it, it sets our hearts on fire. And God has justified us. God has justified us. In other words, he treats us as though we had lived a perfect life. The perfect life that Jesus had lived. As if we had loved God the way that Jesus did. As if we had loved our neighbor the way that Jesus did. And that's only possible because Christ took our condemnation for us. And it's God who makes that determination. God decides. There is no court that the devil can make an appeal to in order to overturn and reject those that God has chosen. There is no court above God. God is the final, eternal, just God and judge. So if God says, you're justified, you're justified, period. Paul goes on in verse 34 with uh, more encouragement. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. For us, there is no condemnation because the penalty that was rightly ours has been paid for by Christ. And the proof, the proof of our justification is the resurrection 
of Jesus. And the risen Jesus sits there in the throne room at the right hand of God, exalted, and there he intercedes for us. Jesus is there in the throne room interceding for us. Uh, When I first thought about that, I was greatly, greatly comforted. Uh, But over time, uh, when I kept making mistakes, or I made new mistakes, I started to wonder quite what that conversation in the throne room between Jesus and God would go like. Did Jesus go to the Father and say, I've come, it's about Saab, he's dropped the ball again, Uh, would you please forgive him? And the Father would say, yep, of course I'll forgive him. And then I wondered, if I keep making mistakes, or that besetting sin that I struggle to overcome, how many times would Jesus go to the Father asking to forgive me? Or would it be the case that eventually Jesus would go, it's about Saab, and the Father would say, oh man, really, again? I can't believe that. How many times is that now? So the thought of Jesus pleading my case based on mercy before the Father, when I really thought about it, got me a little worried, if I'm honest. And there was a sermon by a Puritan preacher, Charles Hodge, that really, really helped me. And I think it's really helpful uh, for us because he he took me to uh, 1 John 1 verse 9, where John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Hodge pointed out that if, as we confess our sins, God is willing to forgive them. But that forgiveness doesn't have its root primarily in his mercy, but rather in God's faithfulness and his justice. You see, when... Jesus goes before the Father with our case, based upon justice. He presents himself as the lamb who was slain, as the one who has paid for my sins. And the case that Jesus makes to the Father is that the price of my rebellion and yours, if you're here this morning as a Christian, has been paid for by Jesus. It's been paid for in full. Jesus says to the Father, it would be unjust for him to exact a payment from me. It would be unjust of God to get two payments for the same sin. Once from Jesus and then once from me. So Jesus advocates on the basis of justice and faithfulness primarily. And so what he says here, what John says here and what Paul says is hugely, hugely comforting. And so Paul concludes with the amazing truth that we have in verse 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul tells us he is convinced, completely persuaded, sure and Utterly confident, based on the truths contained in this letter to the church in Rome, that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he stretches the broadest of canvases here, doesn't he, to show us this. He says, nothing in this life 
Uh, Not circumstance, not the opinion of others, uh, not our own failings, not our successes, not illness, not adversity, not sword, nothing. Nothing in the spiritual realm, neither angels nor demons. Nothing from uh, all eternity past to all eternity future. Nothing below us, nothing above us. And then to catch everything, nothing in all of creation, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's love for us is that certain. That if we trust in Jesus, we can know that we will never fall out of God's hands. We will never be beyond God's reach. Nothing can overcome the strength of the Lord's mighty arm. Once we're in Christ, once we trust in Jesus, we are firm forever. Now, I said it uh, when I started that uh, whatever ails us in our Christian walk, uh, our problem of a a lack of assurance uh, is really what's underneath all of our spiritual problems. Uh, What we need to do is to look at our lives Uh, The way that we're living, particularly in those areas where we're living in a way that the Father doesn't want us to live, where our lives don't reflect the truths of our salvation, where there is essentially a lack of assurance in our lives. And then we need to bring those truths back to our minds and pray them hot so we can diminish those areas where we lack assurance. So three very quick examples. Question, do we still harbour grudges and find it difficult to forgive? Then, if that's the case, then you've uh, lost the assurance that you yourself no longer stand condemned. That for you there is no condemnation. That you need to justify yourself. You need to show others that you are better, kinder, more compassionate than others. That you're the only one who will ultimately decide who is right and who is wrong. You've lost the assurance that your Father in heaven is the one who justifies. It's Jesus who removes our condemnation, not us. We've lost the assurance of God's justice, the justice that sets us free. Uh, Do you struggle to be generous in the support of gospel ministry? And then you're failing to acknowledge or have the assurance of the great riches that are now yours, now and into all eternity, because we've been adopted as God's children. We're failing to have the assurance of the sweetness of being God's child, that adoption into God's family isn't a gift that money can buy, that God's love has been settled on you before the foundations of the world. And your money doesn't make you more beautiful to God. A lack of assurance will make you hold on to your money because you think money gives you control. That you and not the Lord are sovereign. You've lost the assurance of the sovereignty of God, of the goodness of God in providing everything that you need. And you've lost the assurance of being a child. Now, do you struggle to carve out time? To read your Bible. Uh, Then you're lacking the assurance that God is indeed your father in heaven. Who longs to speak to you. 
you'd lack the assurance that by the Holy Spirit, the Father will speak to you. He will speak to you through his word. And you doubt that you can have a living relationship with the Father. A relationship that starts now and stretches throughout all eternity. A lack of assurance makes you reluctant to be in God's word and to pray. And it drains the vitality from our prayer life. And it's true across the whole of our lives. If you lack assurance, it hinders the way that we can love others. It thwarts our efforts to be a good employee or a boss. It puts thorns in our marriage. It frustrates our children. It wounds our friends. And above all, it will drain and dry up our relationships with our Heavenly Father. So what's the remedy? We need to fill our hearts with the promises of God. These are the truths that the Holy Spirit will bring to our mind to give us the assurance that we have been saved, that there is now no condemnation, that we've moved from being enemies to being children, that we are loved now and through all eternity, that God will never abandon us. The assurance of our salvation comes from knowing that we can be certain and depend on God's love for us because it's a function of God's love for us, not the other way around. And to the extent that we're willing to surrender our lives to God, the Spirit will bring those truths to our hearts and transform our lives. The power of the Spirit will be set free. One practical thing, therefore, for us to do this week, can I ask you this week to read slowly, every day, Romans 8. Yeah. Just read Romans 8. Take the time to see what God says about his love for you. His never-ending love for you. His sacrificial love for you. That you can trust this one with everything and all things and always. And as you do that, allow those truths to settle into the very core of your being. And ask the Spirit to set those things on fire. Pray them hot. To close, some words from Spurgeon on the transforming effect of growing assurance in the life and attitude of the Christian. He says this. A well-grounded assurance is the most active worker in the field, the most valiant warrior in the battle, and the most patient sufferer in the furnace. There are none so active as the assured. Let a tree be planted in this soil and watered with this river and its boughs will bend with fruit. Confidence of salvation stimulates exertion, joy in faith, it removes sorrows and realizing assurance overcomes all difficulties. There never were people so self-sacrificing, so daring, so zealous, so enthusiastic in the cause of Christ as the people who know that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life and therefore out of gratitude serve their God. Man, I want that. I want that for me. And my prayer is that we want that for ourselves. Let me pray.
Uh, Father, we do thank you uh, so much for these amazing truths. Father, would you help us? Would you please help us to allow these truths to be the bedrock upon which we stand? Might you, by your spirit, open these truths to our hearts? Would you give us the strength that we need to put to death the sins that beset us, the habits that erode our assurance? And might we know your, your voice speak to us, assuring us of who we are because of what you have done for us. Might our hearts be filled to overflowing. Might your love cause us to pour out our lives for you and to do that with joy. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's something you heard this morning, um, maybe you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christian, or maybe you're struggling with this whole issue of assurance, you're unsure about where you stand with Christ, do please have a word with Sub, myself, afterwards. We'd be very pleased to talk to you about that. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, uh, the prayer ministry team will be available in this corner over here. Do look out for the guys with the red lanyards. Or do pray maybe with somebody you came with, the person sitting next to you. Let me close by praying those words that finish that passage from Romans 8 we focused on this morning with a wonderful reassurance. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.